0: Hello, world. Welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, October 10th, 2016, the Tory nativism and dumb referendums edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham. I'm joined, as usual, by one of my two co-hosts. That is Christala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Christala.
1: Hello, Adam. Hello, world.
0: We are, regular listeners, in a Scott Lucas free studio temporarily, because he's off talking to somebody else. We're hoping he's going to be back with us. However, we are joined uh, by a very special guest this week who was coming anyway, but who helpfully brings our numbers for the opening segment to the, uh, the quorum of three. That is Mark Goodwin, who is a lecturer in British politics. How are you doing, Mark? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Adam. Good to be back. Welcome back. It's been quite a while, listeners, hasn't it? Quite a while uh, since we've been together. We've been uh, missing you. <laughs> But what a pair of topics we have got for you this week. First, the British Party conference season ends with a festival of Little England nativism in our very own city of Birmingham. What should we make of the apparent rise and rise of identity politics and xenophobia in the UK? Second, after we celebrated the apparent arrival of peace to Colombia after 52 years of civil conflict, we find we spoke too soon. The peace deal has been nixed by a referendum. We thought it'd be rude not to go back to that topic, so we'll talk about it specifically, but also more generally about referendums and whether they're ever a good idea, since 2016 has offered some choice examples of their ability to wreak havoc. The British Conservative Party's annual conference took place in our very own city of Birmingham, October the 2nd to the 5th. It was the first for Theresa May as Prime Minister and the first since the government was radically reshuffled following the UK's vote in June to leave the European Union. The most striking theme that most observers identified was a sharp break with the liberal, cosmopolitan and globalisation-hugging administration of David Cameron and George Osborne that went before. In its place was a good deal of outreach to those voters who have driven, or were seen to have driven, the Brexit vote. Native-born, probably white, not that wealthy, and resentful of immigrants, bankers, and liberal elitists in equal measure. The Prime Minister pledged to put the state in the service of protecting such people's interests. Both Mrs May and her Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, were showered with condemnation from liberal critics in the media and beyond for taking a nativist turn that would make the country a more xenophobic, racist, and possibly authoritarian place. To secure xenophobia as the theme of the week for accusation and debate, the remainder of it was then spent rowing about two things that seemed to fit with that charge. First, a proposal that British employers should have to reveal the proportion of their staff who are not British. Second, a claim by the London School of Economics that they'd been told non-citizens could no longer advise the Foreign Office on the EU ahead of exit talks. Here to help us out this week, as we said in the intros, is Mark Goodwin, who knows his onions when it comes to British politics. So Mark, if my Facebook feed is to be believed this week saw the dawn and rise of a new British fascism, um, is that right? Uh, In a word, yes it is, Adam. Uh, This is
2: fascism, red in tooth and claw. Uh, No, I think, you know, at the risk of being a very humourless person in in the context of our uh, light-hearted badinage that goes on on this podcast, you know we should be careful as political scientists and social scientists with those kind of words and that kind of language I didn't uh read it that way. I thought there you know the kind of things that people are talking about, particularly the second speech that Theresa May gave and the speech by amber Rudd, um uh were there was certainly i would go as far as to say there was an element of overdoing it uh an element of kind of uh intemperance perhaps uh, and their obviously reaction since there's been an attempt to rob it back I think what you the broader context of those speeches is that you're looking at a Conservative Party now that is just trying to avoid own goals their opposition on both sides really is falling apart Uh, and people, some people describe this as a grab for the centre but I, I see it more as an attempt to expand out both directions. Their major goal or objective at the moment has to be to try and avoid a split within the Conservative Party. UKIP is not a threat to them at the moment. The Labour Party is not a threat to them at the moment. So I read the second speech by Theresa May and the speech by Amber Rudd as a slightly over-the-top attempt to stamp on any accusation of a sell-out from the Conservative Party. Uh, Eurosceptics. Theresa May and Amber Rudd were both campaigners on the Remain side. So I think there's an element of the, uh, you know, an attempt to show contrition for having campaigned on that side of the debate uh, and to try and draw closer those uh, Eurosceptics in the wing of the party that they represent. So, uh, you know, as Machiavelli says, when you have enemies, you either choose to crush or conciliate. Well, as we spoke last time, there's a certain tendency in the Conservative Party that has been crushed. Uh, The kind of uh, Cameron-Osborne axis had to be moved aside, had told us Brexit was going to be disastrous. It's happening. You can't have those people around. They're an embarrassment. So they've been moved to one side. And the uh, big task now is to conciliate, to bring the party back together. So that's what I saw uh, as the motive uh, behind that, those speeches, the second speech by Theresa May and the, and the speech by Amber Rudd. Now, as far as Amber Rudd's speech, which I, I take it is the thing that people have been most concerned about, um, I don't think people should have been as surprised as they seem to be uh, about the direction of travel here. Existing immigration policy and the direction of travel from the point at which Theresa May took over at the Home Office is in this direction. Existing immigration laws for non-EU citizens are quite restrictive, some would say draconian. So, for example, it's a fact not widely known that if you're married to a non-EU national, you're not allowed to bring them into the country unless you earn above £18,600 a year. Not the household, you as an individual. So that is the direction that has been uh, that immigration policy went under Theresa May, and it's this, to me, is a continuation of that. So I don't see it as a radical break from those things, but rather that, uh, an extension of those things to EU citizens. And let's not forget that a lot of what Amber had said in kind of tone, or, or perhaps as if you reduce it to a slogan is not that dissimilar from the kind of things Gordon Brown was saying in 2007 about British jobs for British workers, um, which he was also pilloried for uh, at the time. Uh, But I don't think it's quite the radical shift uh, in sensibility or certainly in policy that people seem to think.
0: Hmm. Cristala, you and I are both... uh visitors in this country, yes, I guess, are. according to the, uh, uh, the, the the new thinking, you perhaps more uh, uh, auditorily noticeably so than me. Um, you've seen the same Facebook feeds I have yeah. as well in terms of people's reaction to this. What was your reaction to this? Did you take it to be the kind of hammer blow of aggressive xenophobic attack that it has been widely characterized as? Uh,
1: look, what was interesting for me... <sighs> Wasn't so much the facts of what happened as, as the way that people, the way that people who are from outside responded to this. And I think what we have to realize is that it may not be fascism or impending fascism, but um, people from EU, EU nationals are afraid. And so, what was coming up in my Facebook feed was a really legitimate fear that people have that we no longer belong here. And the conversations that I was having were really interesting because they were, they, they're kind of highlighting this increasing fear and feeling of marginalization that people from abroad feel. And regardless of, I mean, I think that what you're saying, Mark, is really interesting in that what what Theresa may is doing is really uh equalizing immigration policy actually and she's taking out i mean and from a radical perspective you can say well maybe she's knocking out this this uh, this kind of this kind of colonial idea that eu nationals should have uh, an elevated series of rights but Mm. but 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 eu nationals are feeling increasingly afraid of their place here and are pulling themselves to the margin and that's something that needs to be addressed.
0: I mean it's, it did it seems to me like a manifestation of polarization on on, on both sides yeah. um, in that as, as you say as Mark said there is a thing here that has been going on probably for some time, if yeah. you look at the policy substance of it, albeit that those forces that it 's appealing to on the fringes are now more visible and people are more worried about them, but also the reaction to it on the other side is much more um, strong and forceful and uh, and so on and i don't know my, my 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 feeling about it was that I mean the Tory party's conference tone was not pleasant you know those are not my people they are unlikely to ever be my people the way in which they went about talking about uh, these issues was especially cumulatively like when you added up 101 things that each sounded fine on their own the decision to put all those into one room over a three-day period seemed pretty unpleasant um, but i also do think that you know some of the reaction Uh, You know, I I don't like to throw the word hysterical around uh, too casually because it has, you know, uh, connotations. But I I think there was a degree of hysteria to the way I think some liberal forces within my circles at least reacted to it. I mean, one of the things that was doing the rounds most was that LBC clip where there was a passage from Mein Kampf about the bright line between citizens and non-citizens being read out. And then they kind of revealed... Uh, You know, uh, well, he presented it as though it was a a quote from Amber Rudd, and then revealed it was Mein Kampf. And the implication one is supposed to take is basically that this is how, this is how Hitler started. This is how the Nazis start. This is how this kind of thing starts. And that's not wrong. I mean, this is how Hitler and the Nazis start, but it's how lots of other things start too. And you know, there are lots of things that that that. uh, that, that begin and go all the way and there are lots of things that never go in that direction in the same way as talking about social welfare is how yeah. a communist state begins um, but uh, doesn't necessarily go to that point.
1: You're, you're spot on about the marginalisation, the polarisation but uh, what I mean, what's dangerous about this regardless of the direction that it goes in and what might push it into a less savoury direction is that it legitimises those kind of white whatever parochial margins to be able to say what they feel like so Mm. for example you know the collection of stories among EU and non-white EU nationals is is growing about being told this or that on a train and blah 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 and I mean I was at a party and I was told to fuck off back to Spain a couple of, uh, a little while ago. Why Spain? I have no idea. Visibly Spanish, perhaps. Um, but. Is this time of year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My response was it would be nice, actually. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that. But I mean, it, it legitimizes something that is unsavory, right? Mm. And that, regardless of, of the hysteria that is responding to this climate mm. and the lack of, and, and the non helpfulness about it that needs to be addressed
0: yeah so, so I mean I, I agree and here's my concern that results from that, that, that agreement in a way like clearly what we we want what well, all of us in this room do want what we should want is to draw this bright line between acceptable and unacceptable kinds of speech and acceptable and unacceptable kinds of politics and what we want is for racism and homophobia and uh, xenophobia to be put outside the bounds of the normal political discourse, because otherwise it gets normalized and it possibly does catch on and go to other places. But if what we end up doing in the effort to achieve that is to say that everything that isn't unimpeachably metropolitan and liberal, according to our sensibilities here in this room, is taboo or prohibited if all discussions of Identity and nation and citizenship of the kind that I think the Conservative Party is trying to claim in some neutered form for the mainstream of the political discourse in a way that's aimed at marginalizing people who want to talk in harsher terms about, Mm. about it, then I think if we say that all of that sort of talk is in any form inherently fascist or the, door to, or, or, or the opening of the door to fascism, we risk telling a huge number of people, probably most people, that these ideas are fascist, they can't be discussed, and increasing the odds, therefore, they end up in the company of, uh, of the real fascists, which is not where we would want them to be. Because, I mean, as, to go back to what Mark said at the start, you know, These sorts of issues, these sorts of concerns about immigration and its effects and about national identity and how to manage its change under the pressures of globalization are things politicians of all stripes have had to talk about and have been talking about for a very long time. So if we're now saying, we being the metropolitan liberals, that this whole discussion is inadmissible, then we should accept quite how new a redrawing of the boundaries of politics, that is, and quite how many people, again, I would say the vast majority, were in danger of leaving on, on the wrong side of political incorrectness. And we're seeing in America right now where political incorrectness can get you if you set it up to be a target for people to run at, uh, claiming that their legitimate normal political discourse is being disallowed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I tend to agree with that. I think the at- attempt to stamp down on anything in this area will be counterproductive. It will be seen as the response of exactly the kind of people that Theresa May is is starting to put together as these kind of folk devil uh, people, figures of the liberal metropolitan elite who just don't understand these issues. So I I think it's very dangerous. Everybody needs to be careful about the kind of language they're using. I can understand that for um, non-Brits, EU citizens and so on, that the past few months in particular, and as you say, cumulatively could feel threatening, could feel that your uh, presence is no longer, you know, mm. welcomed, perhaps. But look at it from the point of view of the Conservative Party leadership. They've got to have something to show on immigration. They've got to have something to shut up the critics, their critics on the right and avoid an accusation of a sellout. That's almost the most important thing to them at the moment. So they've got to have something to show on immigration. You look at this policy with the supposed list of foreign workers, I mean, it's quite a thin policy, really. I mean, it's, okay. we're going to have a list of how many foreign workers are employed by a company.
0: It's not even a list. I mean, it was presented as a list in a lot of news stories as though there was going to be, like, a sequence of names on a piece of paper. Whereas, in fact, it was, uh, I mean, it's very unclear exactly how solid this proposal ever even was. But the idea, as I understood it, was that companies would have to declare the proportion of their employees who were not British. And if that was public, I guess the theory is it would, quote, unquote, shame people into trying to have a higher, higher number of British people as they could, right?
2: Yeah, well, I, I mean, this is the way, and I think there's been an element of rowing back as well on, on what it's going to be, OK, it won't be public, for example. And But, you know, you have this information and do what with it? I mean, it doesn't seem a particularly um, active way of, of trying to manage this problem. I mean, the, the, a lot of the problems that Brown faced with trying to elaborate this idea of British jobs for British workers, with, he was hemmed in and restricted by... EU law, basically, mm. and, and, and not being able to discriminate in favour of, of um, domestic workers. But I think you know, it's something I don't know if we're going to plan to talk about labour or not today. But I think that one of the okay, one of the problems that I, that I feel they have, and I, I, is a real lack of feel for vernacular politics, and particularly this idea that there's something inadmissible, uh, even fascist, about the suggestion that you should prioritise British workers and British citizens in employment or in public services, for example. I think you would have a hard time convincing a lot of people that that isn't your job when Mm -hmm. you're the government. So I I think that lack of feel for vernacular politics, the more uh, the... Opposition and the response to this separates itself from the way a, a huge proportion of society sees these issues, it's mm. going to actually make their opposition to this strategy and this tone weaker. Right.
0: Because, I mean, the the latest poll out this morning uh, tells us that the Conservative Party is 17 points ahead of Labour, apparently, in the opinion polls. Now, there are many reasons for that. Uh, Not all of them policy related. But nevertheless, if what we witnessed was a barefaced declaration that fascism is the way forward, then either there are a lot more fascists in this country than we would previously have thought, or the public heard something quite different from what those who fear that. Uh, to be the case, would have thought. And Christala, you come from a country that uh, has Mm. done its fair share of efforts to identify and uh, tread carefully and sometimes not so carefully around the line of xenophobia and racism and uh, admissible immigration control discourse. Do you see any parallels between what's happening here now and what most people would think of as the rather hard turn Australia took? Uh, in the recent past
1: um it's interesting because within australia this was in in the last kind of what 30 years since these policies and adams talking about australia has really uh, rigorous uh regulations around who is allowed to come into the country who is allowed to become a citizen um and it's and it's uh, It's oriented around particular occupations that are needed in the country and wealth as well, ages, Um, so all of the obvious stuff. Within Australia, um, because Australian policy has been so uh, white and so, um, I would say, indiscriminately racist actually for so long, there hasn't been a, a cultivation of a debate around that. So Australia is not, the the debate within Australia is not particularly reflexive around, you know, do we want, um, what kind of people do we want coming into the country and so on and so forth. In regards to workers, the, the 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 conversations in Australia that are much more careful are around what does multiculturalism look like, what does multiculturalism look like, what does a multi-ethnic society look like, and how do we hold these tensions, because they are tensions, Together in a more or less coherent way, and there is tremendous polarization in Australia as well about how we do that um, and like here in Australia, the kind of liberal left as such has been killed in this in this debate, completely silenced in this debate and is really infrequently heard so I mean Australia is not a leader in terms of now in terms of how we how we confront these issues of how we live in multi-ethnic societies cohesively.
0: So one, one last thing before before we wrap up, just uh, uh, you mentioned it, 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 it earlier, Cristala, this LSC thing. I don't know if anybody wants to touch it. I mean, to, to give listeners who are not familiar with the details uh, a quick primer. The gist of it is that uh, the London School of Economics, which apparently does a significant amount of consultancy and advice work with the the British government, including the Foreign Office, had a briefing from someone at the Foreign Office. The impression uh, that they took away from that briefing was that people who were not British citizens were not going to be allowed effectively to provide advice and consultancy to them anymore. This made it from uh, the email that was sent within the LSE to the tweet stream of an LSE academic and from there into The Guardian and The Telegraph and a whole raft of other places. The Foreign Office has since uh, leapt uh, uh, into the debate to attempt to, to cut it off, to say we have not changed anything, nothing is different here. But clearly... One of two things is is, is true. Uh, well, one of three things is true. Either there has been a major change of policy, and the government is now being dishonest about that, or uh, someone in the Foreign Office botched what they were saying to the LSE, and that led to the dissemination of information that was not accurate about a change, and that caused this, uh, This or the LSE, possibly primed by the politically charged environment we've just been talking about, were told something were ready to hear the other thing and then went, uh, uh, went off on the basis of what they thought they heard rather than what they did hear. Um, what do we make of all of this? Is it a sign of what's actually going to come down the line or is it a sign of how perilously difficult communicating on anything to do with the EU now is because everyone is so tinderbox ready to go up uh, at that, that slight suggestion? Yeah,
2: I think I'm going to file this one under huge if true. So um, I think that what subsequently happened means it's not what people first thought it was. I think it's, uh, if that was the strategy of the civil service as in their uh, dealings with Brexit, that would be um, very, very bad It would be a strategy. bold move, as they say <laughs> yeah. in Yes Minister. But um, I think what it tells you, it can tell you a lot while not necessarily being true. This story, and I think it does speak to that Um, perhaps fear, sense of marginalization that people are experiencing. The fact that people would believe something like this would come out is itself revealing. Um, And I think this, you know, we work in a university as well with many uh, staff from all over the world, and I can well understand that that would be the kind of audience that is very worried. At the mm. moment, about what's happening, uh, about their continuing status as EU or or, uh, or citizens from other parts of the world, so I think that's what it really tells you, rather than necessarily how the FCO mm. plans to conduct its work.
0: And it, I mean, it kind of it adds on to this atmosphere, probably started in part by that remarked by Michael Gove during the referendum campaign about not wanting to listen to experts yeah. or people being tired of experts, that in some sense, uh, academics, because of their liberal political sensibilities, and then doubly so, academics of EU nationality, are seen as being a sort of fifth column of people who are not on board with the project that is Brexit, and therefore... Yeah. Um, are perhaps unlikely to be tapped for political reasons because I think the underlying fear, and as much as as much as anyone ever defended this, the gist seems to be you can't give uh, non-British EU specialists access to the British negotiating position because they'll pick up the phone and give it straight to everybody on or, or on the other side, um, which is a problem of such relative small size. <laughs> the idea that you would solve it with this sledgehammer of a policy is almost laughable when you think about it. But I, I, again, that kind of atmosphere of a trench between uh team britain and this dubious uh, rootless class of people who might betray team britain's position was a big part of it uh
1: the only thing that i would add to that is that um that i know kevin featherstone quite well um and i know him well enough to know that he's a very careful person um, this is the LSE
0: academic who had the phone call conversation with the fco a person that led to this.
1: That's right. Um, and so I know him to be a very careful uh, and meticulous um, academic or person, actually. So so it, it would be remarkable. I mean, I agree entirely with what Mark's saying, is that, that what's more interesting here is the shift and the dynamics and the, the things that are around this. But on the note of the detail, uh, it would surprise me if if he had moved into the trenches, so to speak.
2: But it wouldn't have to be his mistake necessarily. Yeah. It could could be the other side or... uh,
1: Yeah, 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 that's true.
2: Which I think is probably more likely.
0: Yeah, we we can safely say that uh, at least someone uh, in this chain of information being passed had a very bad morning uh, (laughs) the day that this story broke. And I'm sure we'd all be quite curious to know who, who it was. Okay, let's call that a day there, shall we? And, as promised, during the intro, we have a a, a late joiner for the podcast, professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview, Scott Lucas. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing
3: very well now that I'm here.
0: It's good to have you. Okay, it's time for number of the week. We are down one Cristala, so we have a sort of relay system or a rotating shelf of cast members this week. Mark and I are the mainstays. Um, Let's uh, take a number, tie it to a news story, and proceed. Mark? Mark? As the guest, you get the uh, the honour of leading us off.
2: Oh, thanks very much. OK, um, my number of the week is 55, and that is the proportion or percentage of the votes from Labour members and supporters aged 18 to 24 won by Owen Smith, according to a poll by YouGov. So um, if... You know The reason that's interesting, I suppose, is that the, the common perception is that Jeremy Corbyn has the youth vote locked up. Now, obviously, he won that election very convincingly by a two-thirds to one-third margin, but he seems to have lost, if this poll is to be trusted, and obviously usual caveats apply, sample size and so on, but he seems to have lost that demographic. Uh, now, if his strategy, Corbyn's, is to have a massive increase in Labour support, coming from groups that presently tend not to vote, such as people aged 18 to 24, uh, I think that suggests a serious problem uh, for Jeremy Corbyn. So if, he, if that's the goal, uh, he, he's got a big problem there. Same poll shows you, uh, in Scotland, Owen Smith won 60 to 40 among Labour members. So again, if the goal is to win back Scotland... Uh, And Corbyn will do this and put the party back in a position where it can retake Scotland and by doing so become a viable electoral force. Again, another big problem.
3: Scott. My uh, number of the week is 32. And forgive me in advance for bringing in a personal number, Uh, but in light of the earlier discussion. It's your birthday. I wish.
0: So you don't look a day over
3: 30. <laughs> Getting older by the minute, gentlemen. Sorry. 32 is actually the number of years that I've um, lived in this country, which is why I feel a little bit older when I say that. Uh, it's the number of the years that I initially studied here, then went to work, paid taxes, bought a house, paid it off, raised a couple of kids with very distinctive English accents, an English wife who puts up with me yet it appears that this week at least to many who were at a conservative party conference including the prime minister i'm a second class citizen now you might say well you know it wasn't quite that stark and you might say you know there were political reasons for it and y'all very eloquently did so in the earlier item uh, but the fact of the matter is is that it's it's not just policies that matter it's rhetoric Rhetoric can bring people together, and rhetoric can be very, very corrosive. And when you had a home secretary that stood up and asked for foreign firms to list their workers, if not by name, at least numbers, and presumably universities include, you know, our firm, then it was like there's something wrong with having employees who don't happen to hold a British passport, which I don't. For reasons I can explain, I kept my American passport. And when you have a prime minister who stands up and says, if you call yourself a citizen of the world, you are a citizen of nowhere. You've just been erased. If you dare say, I don't just simply think in an English or British point of view, I can both live here and actually have a perspective, which I think benefits because I come from a different background. Now it may be that there isn't a move on immigration legislation that affects me personally. I've dug in too many roots, probably to be dislodged or thrown out. But I wonder, if for those people who haven't been here for 32 years or are just starting out, whether they come off so lightly. Even if there isn't legislation which bars them, there is now rhetoric. There's now a clear impression which is left that you are only tolerated in this country and that at any point that toleration could end. And given that I have taken great pride in coming to a country where I could send my children to school with people from many different backgrounds, many different faiths, where I can work at an institution and flourish at one with people from many different backgrounds, with many different perspectives, including the people that are around this table right now, and that I took pride in a country which supposedly was one that was going to open itself up and progress rather than turn itself inward in an introspective, nasty, almost expurgation of values, then that is something that the number 32 leaves me with regret on this occasion.
0: Okay, my numbers of the week for There Are Two are 489 versus 178. Allow me to put that into some context first. Uh, I, like uh, Scott, and I suspect quite a few other people in this country, was up late last night uh, watching Donald Trump go at it with Hillary Clinton in the second uh, of the presidential debates. This is not the time to go into the litany uh, of reasons why I don't think Donald Trump managed to successfully portray himself as an electable or indeed even rudimentarily acceptable uh, candidate for president. But setting aside his knowing nothing about anything and uh, having the affect of a obnoxious hectoring relative at a, 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 an unhappy Thanksgiving dinner, um, one of the things that shines through in much of his performance as a candidate is not his wrong political choices so much as his just sheer technical incompetence as a candidate. One of the things that manifested last night was his transparent lack of awareness of where the cameras were at any given time. So he was wandering around the stage in a way that was at best bizarre and uh, according to a lot of the photographic images that have been going around on the internet, at worst aggravated his biggest problem, which is seeming like a creepy uh, bully who looms over women when they're they're attempting to talk. But one of the other aspects of technical incompetence is that his field operation in the election that is about to happen in less than a month is by the standards of uh, this sort of thing almost non-existent. Four hundred and seventy eight 489 is the number of field offices the Clinton campaign has uh, so far opened for this campaign. 178 is the number that Donald Trump has opened. Uh, I'm not a mathematician, but that's quite a big difference. And that is going to grow, apparently, as more offices are opened in the run-up to uh, to. Uh, the, the actual election campaign. So I think the reason why that's important is because Donald Trump's whole campaign, the whole raison d'etre of why it's rational for a political party that might seem crazy, see to do it, should nominate him for this campaign, is because he's going to turn out the voters who are least likely to turn out. He's going to find the parts of the population that normal politicians can't reach and get them to the polls. The way you get people to the polls is by having field offices, is by having an on-the-ground operation, because the thing about people who don't vote is that they are hard to get to the polls. And he has a tiny field operation by comparison with Mitt Romney, by comparison with John McCain, by comparison with any competent person running an operation like this. So it's just one more example of how he talks a game about doing one thing, but his just complete lack of technical competence uh, completely dooms that strategy from the beginning. And frankly, I think you can learn more about that uh, with, regard, with an eye on what his presidency would be like, uh, from that, uh, with an eye on what his presidency would be like, then, the, then you can learn from a lot of the talk that he gives. Because however worried one might be about the evils of his successfully implementing many of the policies he's talked about, probably the more likely hallmark of his presidency will be a rolling clown car of incompetence with regard to actual operational Um, tasks on a day-to-day basis this is not a man who can run anything uh, and the idea that he is bidding to run the country and is in the final two on the shortlist for it it boggles the mind anyway to be continued listeners regular listeners uh, and i hope that's many of you Uh, We'll recall that back at the end of August, we were in celebratory mood on behalf of Colombia, which had just announced the fruit of years of talks in the form of a peace deal between the government and the leftist guerrillas of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC. This followed 52 years of civil war. Uh, which had left 220,000 dead and had displaced 5 million people. We weren't the only ones to get ahead of ourselves. The Nobel Peace Prize Committee bestowed (laughs) its award for 2016 on President Juan Juan Manuel Santos for his leadership in negotiating it, however, as the judges say when the sentence starts to take a dark turn, Readers of fine print will recall that for the deal to go into force required the approval in a referendum of the Colombian people, and it turns out they were not so keen. 50.2%... Oof! We thought it was narrow on Brexit. 50.2% voted against on a turnout of 38%. As we mentioned last time, the deal was opposed by popular former President Alvaro Uribe, and hot topics were the impunity of guerrillas who had committed crimes, the ability of FARC leaders to enter the political process, and reportedly, at least according to the New York Times, a raft of tangential social conservative issues such as gay rights that became indirect themes of the campaign, despite being nothing really to do with it. So we want to talk about that first of all, and we'll We'll do that right now. But also, 2016, what the hell is it with you and referendums? Um, After the Brexit vote in June and now this, both times when an activist minority, seemingly without any clear idea of the alternative, managed to steer a whole country's politics into the ditch, is it time to just admit to ourselves that democracy is nice and all, but referendums are just a terrible way to make these big decisions? Um, And there's an ugliest sin plebiscite underway in Australia as well on gay marriage, as I understand it. So... uh, uh, it continues to roll and roll, the 2016... Has it been approved? No, the campaign is going on and it is ugly. The results may also be ugly, uh, but as yet unconfirmed. So, Christala, yes. um, you were the one who was on point for us in outlining all the reasons why this peace deal gave us a sliver of hope to hold on to in a dark world about the power of diplomacy and, uh, and democracy and the hard work of people of goodwill to bring peace. What the hell, man? Uh, how did we find ourselves in this situation?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there were people in the in the weeks leading up to the into the, to the referendum who were really worried about the result because the polls were showing such a close run. Um, and what is? I mean, there are a few things that that came up with the referendum result and how narrow it was. And one of the answers was that, well, you know, in in, in one of the coastal pro peace areas, um, there was a uh, there was a hurricane which which prevented people from being able to actually get out to vote. And Uribe et al. Um, Lobbied heavily against uh, extending the voting time, so they couldn 't get out to vote um, but more important and indicative indicative of the of the broader trends is that um, there wasn't there was a really deep division this issue of amnesty is really important, and there was a really deep division between victims and survivors of the conflict and and um other family members of people who had been kidnapped by FARC and so on and so forth. And and what kind of it comes down to is a question of how much impunity is to be given to paramilitary organizations. Um, and what Uribe did and his and the no campaign did really well was to uh was to do something that is actually the hallmark of referendums, which was to say that Guys, you know this is this is terrible this is a terrible peace agreement it 's flawed it 's giving uh, free reign to FARC and why should we do that but don 't worry, we can negotiate a, a peace plan in a couple of weeks if you vote no, vote no now for a better peace plan later so and that 's what it looks like a lot of the votes kind of centered on the idea of saying no now um, and being in a strengthened negotiating position later. Um, that hasn't happened. Maybe in another 52 years we'll have
0: have that sweet deal that they held out for.
1: I mean, it's amazing. And the people who voted yes were were, were completely convinced that you make some sacrifices in order to get peace. And so so what the referendum has done has really deeply polarised the Colombian society around this. And as has happened previously, people who are in favor, people who were behind the Yes campaign said, all right, okay, guys, you want to negotiate something, better go for it. Mm. Good luck with that. The the, the, the side um, benefit of what happened is that before Santos was, was given the Nobel Peace Prize, um, it looked like all of the parties were going to come to the table, and one of the one of the flaws of the referendum process in Colombia, or the peace process, was that it excluded particular paramilitary groups and it excluded major segments of the no campaign. So when Uribe said, uh, "Vote no to vote let- yes later." And then everyone, and then people voted no, it provided an opportunity for a bigger negotiating table, which would have and which might still give legitimacy a broader legitimacy to the process. Mm. and what it comes down to is this: when you have peace processes that center on dealing with the legacy of a long running conflict like this, you need to bring the margins in. You need to bring the far right and the far left and the people who are saying no together to the table and as uncomfortable as that is and as long as that takes, you need to get buy-in from those particular people. They need to be stakeholders and not blockers of a process. Mm. Um, and, and, And so that's the opportunity that is kind of... Um, presented to the Colombian peace process now. The problem is that the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to Santos uh, provided um, the no campaign the opportunity to be incredibly cynical about it. Um, And Uribe came out when he woke up that morning. um, When was it? Friday? Was it Friday, the process? He woke up that morning, had a very bad day, and said, you know, this is uh, this this is the corrupt Swedes and Norwegians who are in the pocket of the the Americans or and or the um the mm. Castro Chavez conspiracy. Yeah. You're so in the pocket on. of
0: big peace. Yeah. <laughs> the, that's, uh, right.
1: that's right. <laughs> um which we can negotiate um better terms of. So so it's so the so the Nobel Peace Prize, as is wont to do um, has made things more complicated and more divided, and people on the no side more cynical. So it hasn't. I don't think that it's helped a tremendous amount, though it's made people on the yes side. Um, how would I term it? Uh, it's given them something out of out of the loss. So for,
0: so so for right now, we are in a period of drift while we work out exactly who's going to talk to who and what about
1: because i mean farc has signed on to the continuation of the ceasefire it remains it appears to remain committed so far but this is a day-by-day process um and i wouldn't say that we're adrift so much as there's a lot of backroom negotiation going on to see what this new Uh, state of affairs is going to look like and who's on board and who is not on board and Mm -hmm. it's calling the bluff of particular actors.
3: I start with a sliver of hope um, following one from Cristela's original comments weeks ago because at least FARC has not returned to insurgency. President Santos has not given up the negotiations and said I'll bow to confrontation rather than conciliation. Uh, that said, there are some things that have to be recognized. I mean, the first is the domestic environment. Uh, this was as much a product of the domestic politics between a former president, uh, al and his supporters, who just used this as a way of getting at Santosh. Uh, Iribe wants to be back in power, or at least wants to control the levers of power, and he was able to deliver a slap of the face. Now, does it go farther? I mean, I think leading on to where we are about to go, you know, referendums can be things that we celebrate. You know, we celebrate for the fact and we did in here, we celebrated the Irish vote on same sex marriage, Mm -hmm. right. As being a way that he could go in. Uh, The good Friday agreement, I think against my expectation uh, was supported in a referendum by a community that had gone through decades of bloodshed. Uh, However, I don't think you can say that that's always going to be the case. For example, if you put the Iran nuclear agreement, which was negotiated for more than a decade, to the American people, given the level, I think, of superficial knowledge of what that contained and of hostility whipped up towards Iran, including people messing around with domestic politics, it probably would not have passed. So there's good reason why some treaties go before legislatures and not publics to vote. Mm -hmm. But we are where we are. I think it's interesting about the Nobel Prize because I sort of I wanted to go to the White Helmets of Syria, the civil defense organization. But in their thank you message to uh President Sanchez, or congratulatory message, they said good luck. We hope this leads you to a peace that we don't have. And to that extent, I'm kind of glad that the Nobel did what it did, whatever the political overloading of it is, because we all need a bit of luck. Uh, in a couple of years, there will be a presidential election. Santosh will probably not be able to run. Uh, if his party is defeated by Uribe and the Acolytes, heaven help us. So you've got this window before that next election, and let's hope they make the most of it, uh, whatever our general concerns, which I think have been amplified over uh, referendum. Hmm.
0: I mean, I have to, to pivot Towards a more general consideration of, of, of referendums, I am, as I think we all know from my rolling following of the Donald Trump presidential campaign, holding on by my fingertips to a faith in representative democracy at least. But when it comes to referendums and direct democracy, just don't ask people these kind of questions. Is is, is my Main feeling, and it's already come up in 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 what Cristala was saying. The problem I have with it it's because they admit of fantastical third way phantasms in a way that is just super unhelpful. You know, really, what these things substantively ought to be is, um, you know, would you like to continue wearing this really uncomfortable shirt that you're wearing right now, or would you like to instead change it for this other? very uncomfortable-looking shirt that I am offering to you. And what seems to happen with Brexit, with this, uh, with with 101 other things, is that someone, as soon as you have a referendum, you create a space for people to write in and go, well, how about you instead have this third shirt, details to be confirmed, that's woven from heaven clouds uh, and fairy dust and pure pleasure, and I'll throw in a back rub while we're at it. You will get everything you've ever wanted, Uh, Your enemies will be smited. They'll receive nothing. Um, So you'll be uh, able to experience ecstasy on both material and ideological levels. Uh, All you need to do is reject this uh, crude stitch-up of the establishment, and we'll open the door to this better possibility. And that's like, that's just... I mean, it sounds like patronizing to say it, but that is obviously not true. And yet some degree of belief in it is usually the thing that tips over the balance when it comes to these kind of votes.
1: Look, the thing is also, sorry to interrupt you, Adam, but the thing is that the, the practicalities of peace processes, right, usually referendums get pushed into strong-arm people into agreeing to a process and an end date. Mm. That often happens. So it's a, it's a lever. That's the first thing. So it's not always a kind of brought in out of this high-minded idealism. The second thing is that you know, I'm really torn about this because I've seen multiple referendums on peace processes and one in my own country, right? Cyprus had a failed rep- referendum process in 2004 mm. um, and is going to have one if this peace process comes to, to, to fruition. Um, and the dilemma of peace process, uh, the dilemma of referendums for me is this. You have a group of politicians who are averse to reaching out to, to the broader public, by nature, mostly. A referendum, if done right, and this is the bit in kind of quotation marks, if done right, is almost like an honesty box for politicians because it should force them to reach out beyond their comfort zone and have to explain things and have to think about how do I get this, how do I sell this to people, because at the end of the day it's not about a peace process, it's about the implementation of a peace process and bringing a country kicking and screaming if you like on board with this so so i so you're right but but there's a dilemma inherent to this and that's the public that's the public opinion Mm -hmm. and so the question is if you remove peace um referendums how do you how do you provide sufficient incentive for political elites to reach out beyond their supporter base to be able to um, build kind of stakeholders in a process that is super vulnerable mm. how do you do it and that's why they hang on to referendums it's a, it's a real dilemma
0: yeah I mean the rule of thumb surely has to be unless you are ironclad certain of winning it don't have it because if you have to have a hierarchy of like what the bad situations are having yeah. it in winning's great Not having it because everything gets left a bit gray and noncommittal is bad. But the worst possible thing is where you are then left with this thing that appears to be the will of the people, which steers you nowhere, uh, but which scuppers everything that everyone who has any actual knowledge of the situation believes to be necessary. Because then you can't do all the things that you probably think you have to do because there's this firewall of public uh, popular will that's been put against it.
1: And yet, it's a question of mechanics, because often these things are negotiated at the beginning stage of this six-year process. And so do you, when do you, how do you withhold or mm. bring forward this idea of how to do it? Um, it's, it's a real question. And, and second, how do you do it? How do you get, how do you get political elites to engage publics? If not, to, like, if not to threaten them with the, the fear of no, because mm. all of the negotiators that I've worked with are so um, blindsided by this, they are so focused on the details of what they're trying to do that they, who haven't had referendums processes, they forget the other component, which is speaking it out to the public, because they're overwhelmed. Because they're they're negotiating seven million different parts of a peace process that involves refugee return, that involves you know that involves the economic new economic situation and and new systems of governments and so on and so forth. So they get they get kind of hyper focused on details, which is normal. So how do you provide that mechanism without the tremendous risk that's involved?
0: Hmm. Mark you get the uh, uh I don't know if it's the easy or the difficult one of, of relating this to the british context because i mean that is possibly one of the worst instances of the of, of how a referendum can go wrong for everyone concerned the people who who, who decided to have it and i mean you know what well, within 5 minutes of it being over every party in the entire political system had lost its leader yeah. right which is rarely a sign that things have gone great as far as the elite planning side is concerned
2: yeah, I'm going to start off sounding like I'm agreeing with you and then end up saying something that might disagree with that. But You wouldn't be the first, person. OK, so, it, historically, British politics has been very hostile to the idea of anything to do with direct democracy. The referendum had no real place in British politics, so Attlee uh, described them as a tool of dictators. OK, the plebiscite was something that the fascists in Europe used. It was not the way we did politics here. Um I think uh, Av Dicey said the point of the referendum is to stop those damn fool politicians doing something stupid. (laughs) Okay, so on that level, you know, there are there are many things wrong with uh, referendums, the kind of things we've been talking about. So, how do you interpret yes or no on a question as complicated as Brexit? Uh, You know, the Conservative Party conference. Many people seem to think they knew exactly what everyone was voting on. with emphatic clarity, Theresa May said, we've got the message about what that vote was about.
0: I wish she'd let us know what it was. Yeah, that well, would be very helpful. I'd,
2: I'd love to know, and I'd love to know how she found out. But that's one of the problems with referendums. The bit, and a further problem is this lack of accountability. You can promise the earth and then just run away the minute it's over. Um, as we saw with, you know, the claims made about how much we're going to spend on energy. OK, sorry, we lied. Too late um and yet a further problem is that this thing they don't encourage settling they don't encourage you uh, or voters to to wait uh, issues uh, or make trade offs which is what politics in Hmm. Democracies is.
0: It's the Trump versus Clinton of, yeah. uh, or of electoral yeah. methods, yeah. basically the hard grind of unsatisfying practicality versus just an avalanche of ludicrous, overblown claims.
2: That's it, yeah. I mean, Bernard Crick said, you know, democratic politics is not there to make all sad hearts glad. And <laughs> he was not wrong. Yeah. And, <laughs> but the <laughs> referendum promises that. You know, it promises that it, whatever you don't like about the status quo will go away. So, there are many reasons why referendums might, you know, good, sound, constitutional reasons why uh, you you might not like referendums and why historically they've been avoided uh, in British politics until recently. Uh, Just a word of defence, I think the Brexit decision and the Brexit vote shows you they do have a democratic value and a democratic purpose. So what that vote shows you is that there was... In fact, a majority of people who uh, favoured a very different arrangement of Britain's affairs with the rest of the world, who had no avenue for that view uh, until there was the option of a referendum. So the one party that went into the last general election, general elections in the British system bear all the weight of representation, accountability, democracy. Uh, The one party that went into that election opposing membership of the EU, got four million votes and one seat, and no power. So for people who favoured that view, they had no avenue through the electoral system. The referendum is the only outlet they had for that view, and it turns out that they had a majority. And what is, you know, it, democracy is mm-hmm. more than mere majority, as someone once said, but that is important. That is a valuable thing to know. Uh, mm-hmm. That is uh, an important steer to, if you like, the political class who uh, didn't want to have to engage that question, didn't want Mm. to have to engage questions about immigration um, or uh, the relationship with Europe. And the referendum was the vehicle for doing that. So if you were to make an argument in defence, despite all the flaws of um, Mm. referendums or referenda, I don't know, I think, I, think that mo- be I, think, I
0: think we've moved into a referendum space as a society as opposed to referenda yeah, okay. I, I feel like that's been a, it's been a process but we got there, I don't know, I mean, to, to which my response just in, re- in reaction to what you're saying would be that the, the list of things that the majority of people might want that they should not be given if it can be at all avoided is long uh, but that is probably not a proposition that you'd win a referendum on either uh, so you know Pick your method. Scott, do you want to take us home?
3: I used to have a naive faith. If you go to the people, it will all turn out okay. And, you know, referenda rules. And those politicians, they shouldn't control us. And then I remember in California when I was young, people said, No taxes! We'll have no taxes whatsoever. And I went, Well, wait a minute. Maybe you need to discuss what the taxes are for. And then you hear this elitist. The elitist, and then you hear this discussion, which Mark just pointed to. Well, at least these people gave gave a voice. Well, what it gave them a voice to do was basically talk about the economic and social demolition of the United Kingdom. And is that something I really support? Well, you say, "Well, it's a democracy; you should adhere to it." And then Christalis says, "On the other side, but what if you have different groups of people? How do you ever bring them together?" All that. Look, there's, there's a couple things probably I take out of it. The first is um, Adam's point, which is if you go into the vote, you better go in fully prepared. You go in prepared if you win, and you damn sure go in prepared if you lose. Um, if you had a referendum in this country probably on the death penalty today, yes, hang them all, right? Well, that's why you don't go to the country with that, because what do you do when that comes back with your legal system? That's why Brexit should never have been held as a referendum because even if you respect the vote grudgingly as to what happened, nobody was prepared for what comes next. The whole point about peace processes is that you do prepare for the no vote. And again, the sliver of hope, I wonder if in the Colombian case they were hopeful they could get it through, but there's still that preparation, which is if it goes no, we go back, Mm. right? Northern Ireland, if it goes no, we go back. We don't basically walk this all the way back. The difference on Brexit is you can't walk that back or at least you can't for a while. I think the conservatives will, but it'll be months before we get out of this mess, possibly Mm -hmm. years. So you tread cautiously on referendum, but I think probably coming back at what Adam, Adams made this case very eloquently, is that that being said, I think you have to go beyond the question of the referendum in terms of the case that you're dealing with. Brexit was special in its own horrible, horrible way. Columbia's special in a different way that has to be recognized. Cyprus will be in a different way. And I think if we can at least start with the impression that we need to have knowledge of what's happening, because quite often, and I hate to be horrible because I still have a faith in people, if they don't know what they're actually voting on in a referendum, that's not a very good thing. Mm.
0: I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or comment, which helps others discover the pod. Please also share this episode or other episodes or just a recommendation for us on, on social media. That's very helpful. It's how people find out that we exist oftentimes. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash poll view, where you can see uh, links to this and article links and share comments or post comments, etc. Participants today have been Kristali Yakinthu, who's no longer with us, although I seem to recall from a podcast or two long since past that we can uh, find her at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U
3: on Twitter. Scott, where can they find you? I am at Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter and always at EAWorldview.com, which is a website on international politics and other mischief.
0: Mark, I can't remember if you have a social media presence or not uh, from last time you were here. Uh, do you have one? I do,
2: yes. Although I've been watching the uh, series Hunted, which is making me think I should get rid of it all <laughs> because the state is surveilling me. But for the, as long as it's up and running, uh, it's at, at Mark R. Goodwin uh, on Twitter.
0: Is there another Mark Goodwin out there who's uh, half-inched your, you, your initial list profile?
2: Yeah, absolutely loads of them.
0: I'm Adam Quinn. I'm at Adam James Quinn on Twitter, but you're better off finding me on Facebook because that's where uh, I spend more of my time and post far more. I think I'm Adam. Yeah, I know I'm Adam Quinn 161. If you want to narrow it down, but I look like me. That, that's also a, a clue. Uh, our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We will be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye for now.